So I'm standing outside the Broward County Main Jail in downtown Fort Lauderdale. It might be a little loud here. It's a typically busy day here at the jail. I'm standing near the Sally Port where the police cars go in and out when they're dropping off inmates arriving at the jail. Right now, a big truck is leaving the facility and those Sally Port gates are closing. Let me describe the building really quickly. It's eight stories tall. It can house more than 1,500 inmates. Now, the building is located in a beautiful spot in Fort Lauderdale. And what happens at the jail really seems in stark contrast to almost everything around it. The jail sits along the south side of the New River. There's large yachts parked along the riverbank, and the jail is across the street from some upscale high-rise condos. One of the inmates inside the jail right now is the confessed Parkland shooter. He's been here since February 15, 2018, the day after he admitted murdering 17 people and wounding 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. I'm told the shooter is in a unit all by himself, and he's under constant surveillance by detention deputies. Now, if you've listened to the other episodes of this podcast, you know that we have rarely said the confessed shooter's name. We've mostly referred to him as just that, the confessed shooter. That's intentional. Many of the victim's families don't want to hear his name. They believe it brings him a sort of notoriety that might feed into some twisted desire for popularity or that by saying his name, his actions might inspire others. So we've tried to limit our mention of his name. But in this episode, we are going to say his name. That's because we're examining what's been learned about him since the Parkland shooting and how what's been learned might help to try and prevent or deter mass school shootings in the future. So in this episode, we'll discuss the confessed shooter's school history, some information that's been revealed about his mental health history, and how the Parkland shooting is really driving some of the conversation about improving mental health screening and treatment. Now, just one disclaimer, from what I can tell, most everything that we're going to report in this episode has been reported before. Still, we should let you know that some of the material in this episode might be difficult to listen to. You will hear the confessed shooter describe his plans for the shooting and we'll delve into some of his behavior leading up to the shooting that included very violent, racist, and harmful acts. Just want to give you fair warning. I'm Kerry Codd with CBS4 News in Miami, Fort Lauderdale. This is Parkland, one year later. My name is Nick, and I'm going to be the next school shooter of 2018. That haunting, emotionless voice belongs to Nicholas Cruz. It gives me chills just to listen to it. He made that recording in the days leading up to the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He admitted murdering 17 students and staff and wounding 17 others. He said a lot of sickening things in those videos. I hate everyone and everything. With the power of my AR, you will all know who I am. You will know who I am. That is chilling. In the videos, Cruz expressed a warped, twisted desire to be known, and shooting up a school was the way he chose to do it. We've learned over the past year since the Parkland shooting that Cruz left a series of obvious breadcrumbs of his intentions and his violent tendencies throughout his entire life. Just listen to this from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, which investigated the shooting. This is from the commission's final report. I'm quoting here. Between the time Cruz was three years old in January 2002 and the time he was 19 years old in January 2018, there were 69 documented incidents where Cruz threatened someone 
engaged in violence, talked about guns or other weapons, or engaged in other concerning behavior. That's the end of the quote. 69 incidents. 69 incidents in 15 years for a man not even 20 years old. That is staggering. Yet with all those incidents, Cruz's behavior never resulted in an arrest. Now, the people closest to him saw the behavior. People who barely knew him sometimes saw it. Yet we've learned that few people spoke up when it mattered. And those that did speak up were largely ignored. This is Dr. Peter Langman, psychologist and author. Dr. Peter Langman studies school shooters. He says Cruz's history of bad behavior is not unique among these killers. With Parkland, as with so many other incidents, there were warning signs. And in some cases, people did report them, but appropriate action didn't occur. And that's one reason these things keep happening, that either people don't know what the warning signs are, or when they do recognize them and report them, there's not sufficient follow-through. I want to start briefly at the beginning of Nicholas Cruz's life. According to our reporting and details released by the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Commission, Cruz was adopted as a baby by Linda and Roger Cruz in 1999. His father died when he was five years old. It's been documented that Nicholas and his brother Zachary were challenging for their mother, Linda. The Broward Sheriff's Office had 43 documented contacts with the Cruz family. More than 20 of the calls related directly to Nicholas for things like fighting and running away, acting out towards Linda, and making threats on social media about guns. Linda herself called BSO a number of times for various reasons, like the brothers were fighting, disrespecting her, or one time Nicholas hit her with a plastic hose. Now, as we mentioned before, there were a series of people who encountered Linda or Nicholas and learned of Nicholas's violent and threatening behavior, but few did anything about it. There was a bank employee that Linda regularly interacted with who told investigators after the Parkland shooting about a series of disturbing interactions between mother and son. This is a detective reading what he learned from that bank employee to the Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission. The witness specifically heard Nicholas Cruz threaten to kill Linda and burn the house down. He repeatedly told Linda to kill herself, but if she wouldn't, he would do it for her and burn the house down with her in it so he could watch her burn. The detective told the commission that the bank employee said Linda knew that her adopted son was a threat. Linda Cruz called Nicholas Cruz evil. Linda said she did not want Nicholas with her anymore at her home once he was 18, but she was in fear of what that would mean for other people. Here's what it would mean for other people. A lifetime of pain and suffering for the victims of the Parkland shooting. That bank employee did not mention any of this until after the shooting, that detective told the commission. We know that Nicholas Cruz bought guns, and a friend of his said his mother enabled it. He stated that Nicholas Cruz had told him that his mother, Linda, would take him to purchase firearms and bullets. After he was arrested for the school shooting, a BSO detective asked Cruz about his mother's involvement in his ability to buy guns. So your mom was with you when you bought all the other guns? Yeah. Did well, you tell her? Did she you, come in with me? Did, she, did you tell her why you were buying the guns? I mean, look, I mean, I, mean, I, I got kids too. I would, I'm taking my kids to the gun store to buy all these uh, weapons. I, I think I would ask them, hey, uh, Nick, why do you need all of them? Did you ever have that conversation with your mom? I told her it's. You told her what? It was cool and to protect myself. Attorney Alex Ariaza represents Parkland victim Anthony Borges and his family. Anthony survived being shot five times by Cruz. Ariaza is suing Linda Cruz's estate, and I spoke to him a few months after the shooting. When she didn't address this problem with her kid, eventually 
17 people paid with their lives. Linda died in November 2017, just four months before the Parkland shooting. I asked Debbie Hickson about Linda Cruz's culpability. Debbie's husband, Chris, was a campus monitor at Stoneman Douglas, and he was one of the 17 murder victims. What, what responsibility did she have to do a better job as a parent or to not allow him to buy guns or to alert somebody that he's having problems? She had, she had, when he was little, all the responsibility. That's your job as a parent. Maybe she just didn't have the skills she needed to be the mom. But she took on a responsibility, so it was her responsibility to make it work right. And instead of just being scared and hoping somebody else was going to fix that problem for her, she needed to, to put him, lock him up. On the day she died, a friend of Linda's called BSO to report that Nicholas had guns and to request BSO check on him and Zachary, but no report was written. Later that month, another friend of Linda's called BSO to warn the crews, and I'm quoting here, might be a Columbine in the making, unquote. No report was written on that one, and that friend was directed to another law enforcement agency. There's more from that friend in a moment. Again, these were just additional opportunities missed to possibly stop Cruz. But Cruz's mother and these other people were hardly the only ones who saw something was wrong with Nicholas Cruz. Listen to these comments from people who encountered Cruz. This is a detective reading those comments to the Stoneman Douglas Commission. He would also say things like, I wish all the Jews were dead. The student described Cruz as racist towards African-Americans. Sometimes Cruz would bring deceased animals to school with their heads removed. Nicholas Cruz responded by saying he could go shoot up Stoneman Douglas and he could shoot her too. Cruz said to a group of students at lunch one day that he would like to shoot up the school, but he wouldn't shoot them because he liked them. Scary things, right? And in hindsight, it seems obvious that something was wrong and the crews needed help. But many of these threats and violent acts were not reported to school officials or to law enforcement until after the shooting. And there were more missed chances to intervene. A couple of students at Stoneman Douglas said they did warn school leaders that crews looked up guns on school computers, brought weapons to school, and wanted to see people in pain. But those students say they were ignored by school leaders. School officials disputed that they were told, but what is clear is that Broward schools knew Cruz was troubled. Again, the Stoneman Douglas Commission found some startling numbers. They found nearly 70 incidents involving Cruz in their database, 70, and another 55 incidents regarding Cruz in the district's disciplinary system. In fact, in, at one point in September 2016, the staff at the high school did do what's known as a threat assessment on Cruz, and they told him he could no longer bring a backpack to school. The commission reported that a mental health evaluation was done on Cruz, but it went no further. We're told his home was searched, but no guns were found. Dr. Peter Langman, who you heard from earlier, weighed in on this chronic inability of schools to notice particular red flags about potentially violent students. Our schools have typically lagged behind in terms of the prevention piece. They've done a lot more in terms of their crisis response piece, lockdown drills, active shooter trainings, and so on, and that's important and that can save lives, but a, a lockdown or active shooter response is not preventing the attack from occurring in the first place. So I think as a nation, we need to be doing more to get people trained, as I said, in knowing the warning signs and how to respond to them. In this case, it is believed that more than 30 people had specific knowledge about Cruz's behavior, but, and stop me if you've heard this before, they failed to sound an alarm until after the shooting. 
At some point, Cruz was referred to Broward County's discipline program called the Promise Program, but it's not clear if he attended or completed it. He did stop attending Stoneman Douglas High School, and he went to some alternative schools at one point. And according to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, at the end of 2017 and beginning of 2018, just before the shooting, there were two other important potential opportunities to stop Cruz. Those opportunities came in the form of two separate phone calls made to the FBI. One was from a person who reported a comment made on a YouTube video about someone being the next school shooter. The name on that post was Nicholas Cruz. The FBI determined there was not enough information to figure out who posted that comment, and that report went nowhere. The other call to the FBI was from the same woman who called BSO in late November. On January 5th, a woman called the FBI to tell them about Nicholas Cruz. The woman spoke to the FBI for 13 minutes about Cruz's mutilation of animals, his temper, and the guns that he posted pictures of on social media. She encouraged the FBI to look at his Instagram account. You'll see all the guns. I'm afraid this is so. Something's going to happen. At one point, she says, I know he's going to explode. It turns out that woman was prophetic. I just think about, you know, getting into a school and just shooting the place up. Imagine. The woman also gave the feds the name, address, and phone number of the people Cruz was living with. But even armed with all those details, the FBI did not follow up. The FBI admits that information should have been sent to the FBI field office in Miami. That's what the FBI said in the days after the shooting. Everybody fell. Fred Guttenberg, whose daughter Jamie was murdered by Nicholas Cruz, is suing the FBI. I probably have more anger right now, um, if you're looking before February 14th, at the FBI, who had the most recent, current, specific, explicit intelligence and didn't act on it, who called me the day I was planning Jamie's funeral. I was literally picking out a casket to say we failed, and they failed. Um, I mean, they failed on more than one occasion to follow up on intelligence that they had. As Fred said, the FBI did admit their mistakes, and they did it quickly. The FBI says they've overhauled their process of receiving tips, prioritizing them, and forwarding them to field offices across the country. And all of this lack of reporting about Cruz or failure to follow up on reports of Cruz's behavior really speaks directly to the prevention element of this case. This is all proof of the overwhelming evidence that there were many, many warning signs about Nicholas Cruz. In fact, there were enough warning signs to reach to the highest levels of law enforcement in this country, twice. Yet the shooting on February 14th, 2018, still happened. In this case, there was no lack of care. That comment from Ryan Petty, whose daughter Elena was murdered at Stoneman Douglas, brings us to another critical point in this story. It's not as if Nicholas Cruz did not receive any counseling or mental health treatment during his life. In fact, the Stoneman Douglas Commission found that Cruz received a lot of mental health treatment. Here's a quote from their report. Cruz regularly received hundreds of hours of therapy sessions from Henderson Behavioral Health, Moreover, Cruz also received additional educational services and behavioral care from multiple other providers for many years, unquote. Listen to Ryan Petty, who served on the Stoneman Douglas Commission and whose daughter Elena died at the school. It wasn't because there was, um, because of a lack of care. There was lots of care. Um, sometimes, multiple times a day, this shooter 
didn't get the services that would have that could have put him on a different path from the school district because they were doing what every, a lot of school districts do, which is just try to push him back into the mainstream school. And that was not where he was thriving. That was not where he was getting the kind of wraparound services and care that he needed. And I wonder how different his life would have been had he gotten services for educational services from this district in a more restrictive environment. I certainly know what that would mean to me personally and to my and to my family. My daughter might be here today. Ryan believes that the Broward School District was too concerned with getting students like Cruz into a mainstream school in what they call the least restrictive environment. In other words, a school like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. The momentum of the district, the inertia, if you will, is to is, you know, when there's a when there's event okay, we'll treat it, we'll move him to an alternative school, we'll do some therapy, and then we got to get him back into that least restrictive environment. And I, I think as a society, we've got to start questioning that and, and challenging, is that the right thing? Ryan Petty sees it pretty plainly. Your child's right to a free public education and least restrictive environment ends at my child's right to come home, right? So how do we, how do we address this category of students that that are a threat to others and what should we do? Debbie Hickson said Cruz should not have been at MSD or even at the middle school next door years before. Not every kid should be in a public school system. I mean Nicholas Cruz should have never been at Douglas ever. He should have never been at Westglades. There needs to be and, and as a society we need to understand that. At a recent news conference I asked Broward School Superintendent Robert Runcie about this belief that some students do not belong in a mainstream school setting. Runcie said they have an obligation to put kids in a school in the least restrictive environment. We absolutely believe in that. What we do know is that we need to be consistent in the quality of the interventions and supports that we're providing to uh, our students. We're providing training to folks to make sure um, that we can address some of the gaps uh, that we've seen. The Broward School District put out a progress report a few weeks ago on changes they're making based on recommendations from the Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Commission, and this issue was addressed. In the report, the school district said they're in the process of setting up an enhanced support system for students entering that less restrictive educational setting. It also appears from that report that the school district is trying to increase communication between school leaders when students make this transition. Every student in Florida has a right to learn in a safe environment. That's former Florida Governor Rick Scott after signing the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public Safety Act just a few weeks after the shooting. That bill included a major focus on mental health allocates $400 million for provisions like school mental health programs. The bill set aside millions for Florida schools to expand mental health services and train employees on recognizing mental illness. Nationally, the Federal Commission on School Safety studied mental health in schools as well and reported that much work needs to be done in this area. The commission found, and I'm quoting here, an urgent need to reduce risk for youth mental, emotional, and behavioral difficulties. This commission also found, not surprisingly, that schools don't really have the ability to, quote, identify and adequately treat mental illness. This report identifies a lot of forward-thinking measures and programs that states and local communities can implement, but the report is glaringly lacking when it comes to paying for those types of mental health programs. Educators like Miami-Dade School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho say funding is critical. It's an inconvenient truth in America uh, that uh, young people and those who sometimes, quite frankly, have mental impairments 
are having easy access to, to firearms, and that needs to be looked at. And this is not new. As the Federal Commission said, other high-profile school shootings in the past prompted similar studies and similar facts and concerns were raised about mental health treatment and funding. The report even acknowledges that there are not enough mental health professionals working. And with high turnover rates in that industry, aging workers and low pay, it makes these tough jobs to fill. Anyone touched by this issue usually makes another important point about mental health, the ongoing stigma over seeking treatment for mental illness. Debbie Hickson believes that is something that desperately needs to be addressed. We have to get rid of that. You know, it's there's no stigma for someone trying to, you know, if you're if you have a cold, you go to the doctor to get medicine or to to get advice on how you can make yourself feel better physically. Why is it a stigma mentally? You know, people don't ask to have mental health issues, just like you don't ask to get the flu or cancer or, you know, diabetes or any of those things. So I think better mental health is just somehow getting rid of the stigma that it's it's um, cowardly or, you know, you're not strong if you don't ask for, for help because I think it proves you are strong if you say, listen, I need coping skills. I don't know how to make this work for me. Back here at the Broward Main Jail, Nicholas Cruz is sitting here awaiting trial on 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder. Cruz's attorneys have said publicly for a long time that he will plead guilty to the murder charges in exchange for a sentence of life in prison. But prosecutors have said absolutely not. They're pursuing the death penalty against him. Now, after reporting this episode, I think there's a few takeaways. I think the journey for Nicholas Cruz from troubled child to admitted mass murderer is filled with a lot of lessons for all of us. It's about recognizing that people who act out may just be acting out. It may be part of their natural growth process. There may be no need for interventions. Or it might be a sign of something deeper, something more insidious. If there's one takeaway from all we've learned about this man through our reporting and the investigations done by law enforcement, I think it's this, that it's important for all of us to recognize warning signs in people we know and to be confident in speaking up about what we see or what we hear, what we think, and then make sure that our concerns are followed up on. Here's Dr. Peter Langman. Now, partly it is an issue of people having trouble believing that it can happen here, but that someone they know even someone who displays warning signs could actually go ahead and commit mass murder. That's a hard thing for people to accept. It's been a very effective tool for law enforcement. In the next episode of Parkland One Year Later. We've filed RPOs on individuals who have made threats to shoot up schools. We dig deeper into RPOs. Those are the risk protection orders in Florida created after the Parkland shooting. They allow law enforcement to remove guns from people deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. We'll explore how they work, how other states are adopting them, and how experts believe they're making our communities safer. That's next on Parkland One Year Later. You can hear previous episodes of this podcast on our website. Go to cbsmiami.com slash parkland. We've also got additional coverage of our television news stories on the Parkland tragedy on the website, as well as some important documents and investigative reports from the case if you want to read more about it. 
You can also find episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts by searching Parkland one year later.